Chapter 3 But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their falling will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Adioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Second Timothy chapter 3 Be the coming apostasy, 3 verses 1 to 13 3 verse 1, the apostle now gives Timothy a description of conditions that will exist in the world prior to the Lord's coming. It has often been pointed out that the list of sins that follows is very similar to the description of the ungodly heathen in Romans 1. The remarkable thing is that the very conditions that exist among the heathen in their savagery and uncivilized state will characterize professing believers in the last days. How solemn this is! The last days referred to here are the days between the apostolic period and the appearing of Christ to set up his kingdom. 3 verse 2, one cannot study these verses without being struck by the repetition of the word lovers. In verse 2, for instance, we find lovers of self and lovers of money. In verse 3, the expression despisers of good means literally no lovers of good. In verse 4, we read of lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In verses 2 to 5, 19 characteristics of mankind during the last days are given. We shall simply list them and give synonyms that explain their meaning. Lovers of themselves, self-centered, conceited, egotistical. Lovers of money, greedy for money, avaricious. Boasters, braggarts, full of great swelling words. Proud, arrogant, haughty, overbearing. Blasphemers, evil speakers, profane, abusive, foul-mouthed, contemptuous, insulting.
disobedient to parents, rebellious, undutiful, uncontrolled, unthankful, ungrateful, lacking in appreciation, unholy, impious, profane, irreverent, holding nothing sacred. 3 verse 3, unloving, hard-hearted, unnaturally callous, unfeeling, unforgiving, implacable, refusing to make peace, refusing efforts toward reconciliation, slanderers, spreading false and malicious reports, without self-control, men of uncontrolled passions, dissolute, debauched, brutal, savage, unprincipled, despisers of good, haters of whatever or whoever is good, utterly opposed to goodness in any form. 3 verse 4, traitors, treacherous, betrayers. Headstrong, reckless, self-willed, rash. Haughty, making empty pretensions, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, those who love sensual pleasures but not God. 3 verse 5. Outwardly these people seem religious. They make a profession of Christianity but their actions speak louder than their words. By their ungodly behavior, they show that they are living a lie. There is no evidence of the power of God in their lives. While there might have been reformation, there never was regeneration. Weymouth translates, they will keep up a make-believe of piety and yet exclude its power. Likewise Moffat, though they keep up a form of religion, they will have nothing to do with it as a force. Phillips puts it, they will maintain a facade of religion but their conduct will deny its validity. They want to be religious and to have their sins at the same time, compare Revelation 3 verses 14 to 22. Hebert warns, it is the fearful portrayal of an apostate Christendom, a new paganism masquerading under the name of Christianity. From all such people Timothy is exhorted to turn away. These are the vessels described in the previous chapter from which he is to purge himself. 3 verse 6, among the corrupt men of the last days, Paul now singles out a particular group, namely, leaders and teachers of false cults. This detailed description of their character and methods finds its fulfillment in the cults of our present day. First of all, we read that they creep or worm their way into households. It is not by accident that this description reminds us of the movement of a serpent. If they revealed their true identity, they would not succeed in getting into many of these homes, but they use various subtle devices, such as speaking about God, the Bible, and Jesus, even if they do not believe what Scripture teaches about these. Next it says that they make captives of gullible women. This is characteristic. They plan their visit when the husband is apt to be at work or elsewhere. History repeats itself. Satan approached Eve in the Garden of Eden and deceived her. She usurped authority over her husband making the decision that should have been left to him. Satan's methods have not changed. He still approaches the womenfolk with his false teachings and leads them captive. These women are gullible in the sense that they are weak and unstable. They do not lack brains as much as they lack strength of character. They are described as loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. This suggests, first of all, that they are burdened under a sense of sin and feel a need in their lives. It is at this crucial time that the false cultists arrive. How sad it is that those who know the truth of God's word are not more zealous in reaching these anxious souls. Secondly, we read that they are led away by various lusts. Weymouth understands this to mean led by ever-changing caprice. 
Moffat calls them wayward creatures of impulse. The thought seems to be that, conscious of their load of sin and seeking relief from it, they are willing to expose themselves to every passing wind of doctrine and to every religious novelty. 3 verse 7, the expression always learning does not mean that they are continually learning more about the Lord Jesus and the Word of God. Rather, it means that they are constantly delving into one cult after another, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord Jesus is himself the truth. These women seem to come ever so close to him at times, but they are taken captive by the enemy of their souls and never attain the rest that is found only in the Savior. It should be noted at this point that members of the various cults invariably say, I am learning, mentioning the system by name. They can never speak with finality as to an accomplished redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. This verse also makes us think of the vast present-day increase in knowledge in every realm of human endeavor, the tremendous emphasis on education so prevalent in modern life, and yet the abysmal failure of it all to bring men to the knowledge of the truth. 3 verse 8, three pairs of men are mentioned in this epistle. By Jealous and Hermogenes, 1 verse 15, Ashamed of the Truth. Hymenaeus and Philetus, 2 verses 17, 18, Aired concerning the truth. Jans and Jambers, 3 verse 8, Resisted the truth. In this eighth verse, Paul returns to the leaders and teachers of false cults. He compares them to Jans and Jambers who resisted Moses. Who were these men? Actually, their names are not mentioned in the OT, but it is generally understood that they were two of the chief Egyptian magicians who were called in by Pharaoh to imitate the miracles performed by Moses. The question arises as to how Paul knew their names. This should present no difficulty, for if they were not passed down by Jewish tradition, it is not at all unreasonable that the names could have been given to him by divine revelation. The important thing is that they resisted Moses by imitating his works, by counterfeit miracles. That is precisely the case with the false cultists. They withstand the work of God by imitating it. They have their own Bible, their own way of salvation in short, they have a substitute for everything in Christianity. They withstand the truth of God by presenting a cheap perversion and sometimes by resorting to magical arts. These men are of corrupt mind. Arthur Way translates it, their minds are rotten to the core. Their minds are distorted, debased, and depraved. When tested concerning the Christian faith, they are found to be disapproved and spurious. The greatest single test that can be applied to them is to ask the simple question, is Jesus Christ God? Many of them seek to hide their false doctrine by admitting that Jesus is the Son of God, but they mean that he is a Son of God in the same sense that others are children of God. But when faced with the question, is Jesus Christ God, they show their true colors. They not only deny the deity of Jesus Christ, but usually become angry when so challenged. This is true of Christian scientists, spiritualists, Christadelphians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the way. 3 verse 9, Paul assures Timothy that these false teachers will progress no further. The difficulty here is that in every age they seem to be prospering on every hand and nothing seems to hinder their advance in the world. The probable meaning is that every system of error is eventually exposed. False systems come and go, one after the other. Although they might seem to prosper mightily, and even for a long time, yet the time comes when their falsity becomes evident to all. They can lead men up to a certain point, even offering a certain measure of reformation. But they fail in that they have no regeneration. 
They cannot offer a man freedom from the penalty and power of sin. They cannot give life. Jans and Jambers could imitate Moses to a certain extent by their acts of magic. However, when it came to producing life from death, they were utterly powerless. This is the very issue on which the false cults meet their defeat. 3 verse 10, in marked contrast to these false teachers, was the life and ministry of Paul. Timothy was well aware of the nine prominent features which characterized the servant of the Lord. He had followed Paul closely and could testify to the fact that here was a man who was faithful to Christ and his word. The apostles' doctrine or teaching was true to the word of God and loyal to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His manner of life, or conduct, was consistent with the message he preached. His purpose in life was to be separate from moral and doctrinal evil. Faith here may mean Paul's trust in the Lord, or his own personal fidelity. Timothy knew him as one who was utterly dependent on the Lord, and at the same time, one who was honest and trustworthy. The apostle's long-suffering was seen in his attitude toward his persecutors and critics, and toward physical afflictions. As to love, he was selflessly devoted to the Lord and to his fellow men. The less he was loved by others, the more determined he was to love. Perseverance literally means bearing up under, that is, fortitude or endurance. 3 verse 11, some of the persecutions and afflictions, or sufferings, of Paul are described in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 23 to 28. However, he is thinking particularly of those with which Timothy would have been personally acquainted. Since Timothy's home was Lystra, he would know about the persecutions which came to Paul there and in the neighboring cities of Antioch and Iconium. The inspired record of these sufferings is given in the book of Acts Antioch, Acts 13 verses 45 and 50, Iconium, Acts 14 verses 3 to 6, Lystra, Acts 14 verses 19 and 20. Paul exults in the fact that the Lord had delivered him out of all of these crises. The Lord had not delivered from trouble, but he had delivered him out of the troubles. This is a reminder to us that we are not promised freedom from difficulties, but we are promised that the Lord will be with us and will see us through. 3 verse 12, Persecution is an integral part of a devout Christian life. It is well that every young Timothy should be reminded of this. Otherwise, when he is called upon to go through deep waters, he might be tempted to think that he has failed the Lord or that the Lord is displeased with him for some reason. The fact is that persecution is inevitable for all who desire to live in a godly manner. The reason for this persecution is simple. A godly life exposes the wickedness of others. People do not like to be thus exposed. Instead of repenting of their ungodliness and turning to Christ, they seek to destroy the one who has shown them up for what they really are. It is totally irrational behavior, of course, but that is characteristic of fallen man. 3 verse 13, Paul had no illusions that the world would gradually become better and better, until finally all men would be converted. Rather, he knew by divine revelation that the very opposite would be the case. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. They would become more subtle in their methods and more bold in their attacks. Not only would they deceive others, but they themselves would be ensnared by the very false teaching with which they sought to trap their hearers. After having peddled their lies for so long, they would actually come to believe them personally. Seat the man of God's resource in view of the apostasy, 3 verse 14 to 4 verse 8. 3 verse 14, time and time again, Timothy is reminded to continue steadfastly in the teachings of the Word of God.
This would be his great resource in a day when false doctrines would abound on every hand. If he knew and obeyed the scriptures, he would not be led away by these subtle errors. Timothy had not only learned the great truths of the faith, but he had become personally assured of them as well. Doubtless he would be told that such teachings were old-fashioned and not sufficiently cultural or intellectual. But he should not abandon truth for theories or human speculations. The apostle further counsels him to remember from whom he had learned these truths. There is some difference of opinion as to whether the word whom refers to Paul himself, Timothy's mother and grandmother, or the apostles in general. In any case, the thought is that the sacred scriptures had been taught to him by those whose lives witnessed to the reality of their faith. They were godly people who lived with a single eye to the glory of God. 3 verse 15, this is a most suggestive verse. The thought is that from childhood Timothy had known the sacred writings or letters. There is even the thought here that when his mother taught him his ABCs, she did so by using portions of the OT scriptures. From infancy, he had been under the influence of the inspired writings, and under no circumstances should he forget that blessed book which had molded his life for God and for good. The Holy Scriptures are spoken of as being continually able to make men wise for salvation. This means, first of all, that men learn the way of salvation through the Bible. It might also carry the thought that assurance of salvation comes through the Word of God. Salvation is through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We should mark this well. It is not through good works, baptism, church membership, confirmation, obeying the Ten Commandments, keeping the Golden Rule, or in any other way that involves human effort or merit. Salvation is through faith in the Son of God. 3 verse 16, when Paul speaks of all Scripture, he is definitely referring to the complete OT, but also to those portions of the NT that were then in existence. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 18, he quotes the Gospel of Luke, 10 verse 7, as Scripture. And Peter speaks of Paul's epistles as Scriptures, 2 Peter 3 verse 16. Today we are justified in applying the verse to the entire Bible. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible on the subject of inspiration. It teaches that the Scriptures are God-breathed. In a miraculous way, he communicated his word to men and led them to write it down for permanent preservation. What they wrote was the very word of God, inspired and infallible. While it is true that the individual literary style of the writer was not destroyed, it is also true that the very words he used were words given to him by the Holy Spirit. Thus we read in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. If this verse says anything at all, it says that the inspired writers used words which the Holy Spirit taught. This is what is meant by verbal inspiration. The writers of the Bible did not give their own private interpretation of things, but wrote the message which was given to them by God. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21. It is false to say that God simply gave the thoughts to the individual writers and allowed them to express these thoughts in their own words. The truth insisted on in the Scriptures is that the very words originally given by God to men were God-breathed. Because the Bible is the Word of God, it is profitable. Every portion of it is profitable. 
Although man might wonder about some of the genealogies or obscure passages, yet the spirit-taught mind will realize that there is spiritual nourishment in every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. The Bible is profitable for doctrine or teaching. It sets forth the mind of God with regard to such themes as the Trinity, angels, man, sin, salvation, sanctification, the church, and future events. Again, it is profitable for reproof. As we read the Bible, it speaks to us pointedly concerning those things in our lives which are displeasing to God. Also, it is profitable for refuting error and for answering the tempter. Again, the word is profitable for correction. It not only points out what is wrong but sets forth the way in which it can be made right. For instance, the scriptures not only say, let him who stole steal no longer, but add, rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is need. The first part of the verse might be considered as reproof, whereas the second part is correction. Finally, the Bible is profitable for instruction in righteousness. The grace of God teaches us to live godly lives, but the Word of God traces out in detail the things which go to make up a godly life. 3 verse 17, Through the Word, the man of God may be complete or mature. He is thoroughly equipped with all that he needs to bring forth every good work which makes up the goal of his salvation, Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10. This is in sharp contrast to the modern ideas of being equipped by means of academic degrees. Lenski writes, The scripture is thus absolutely incomparable, no other book, library, or anything else in the world is able to make a lost sinner wise for salvation, no other scripture, since it lacks inspiration of God, whatever profit it may otherwise afford, is profitable for these ends, teaching us the true saving facts, refuting the lies and the delusions that deny these facts, restoring the sinner or fallen Christian to an upright position educating, training, disciplining one in genuine righteousness.